Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. I've come to Piazza di Spagna in the center of Rome to meet today's guest. One of the leading lights in our profession, he's had a truly extraordinary career spanning close to 50 years. One of the leading advocates of his generation, he's appeared before the European courts in over 100 cases. In the great tradition of antitrust generalists, his practice covers cartels, vertical agreements, merger control, and state aid. He has the rare distinction of being the leading competition lawyer in two jurisdictions, Brussels and Rome. He's a renowned and prolific jurist, publishing so many articles that our team of fact checkers couldn't come up with a precise number. He also thinks deeply about the law and the legal profession. A legend in the antitrust community and the founder and godfather of my firm's antitrust practice, I'm delighted to welcome Mario Siragusa. Mario, let's start at the beginning. You came to Brussels what seems like a lifetime ago. Tell us what brought you there and what the practice of competition law was like at the time. First of all, thank you, Nick. Thank you for this invitation. It's a pleasure to discuss some of those uh, topics uh, which have spanned throughout uh, my career as a, a EU lawyer. Well, why I came to Brussels? It's very easy. You know, when I was at university in Italy first, there was practically no teaching of EU law. And I was interested in EU law. You know, I had this intuition that, you know, Europe was uh, our future and that I needed to learn as a lawyer to learn how, you know, the, our community at the time, uh, the, the economic community was working. So I had an interest in learning about EU law. And what I did was, first of all, to go immediately after my graduation in law, to go to the College of Europe. And that was, of course, the basis of my uh, starting to understand EU law. I did one year there, I enjoyed it tremendously. After that, I went to Harvard Law for another master in the States. And there, of course, I had already studied the competition law at the college. And then in the US, of course, I took the ARIDA course in antitrust and I enjoyed that tremendously. So by then I had a good understanding of the system of EU law. I had a generally good understanding of antitrust law. I did my year of practice in New York, where I did not do much, of course, EU law. I did more uh, commercial law in the States. And after that, uh, I had the occasion through Cleary to come back to Europe. I wanted to come back to Europe. After my studies in, uh, to give you an idea of the status of uh, EU law at the time, after my uh, LLM at, uh, at Harvard, I came back to Europe. I did the tour of the various Italian firms, of course. And none of those firms at the time had any practice of EU law. And this was not only in Italy, most of the countries, most of the member states at the time, except maybe in Germany, where, of course, because of the existence already of the Bundeskartell, there was a practice of EU law in the various, in some, in, in at least some of the German firms. But in most of the good, strong uh, national firms, there was absolutely no, no interest in your law. And when I received some offers from some of the law firms in Italy to go uh, immediately to work there, and when I said that to some of the senior partners in those firms that I was interested in going to Brussels, they said, Mario, but why to Brussels? 
So this gives you an idea of the status of interest and development of the practice of EU law at the time. It was very limited, very, very limited. So coming to Brussels was, of course, finally I could practice what I had learned in those two years. And we were a very small number of practicing lawyers at the time, which started together, of course, with Don Holly, the partner in our Brussels office, who was interested in, in developing EU law. So we started to follow the developments. To, uh, we started an, a, a system of information for the clients on developments. And whenever there was a first commission decision or a first court address, the court of justice decision in the antitrust area, we organized a, a debate inviting the lawyers which were practicing in the various members. And there were very small groups. There were at least there were 10, maximum 15 lawyers which were interested, coming from Germany, from France, from the, the, from the Netherlands. Of course, there were the Brussels. Uh, uh, um, other colleagues which in other firms which had also started to be interested. So it was a very small world at the time. So that's basically how this all started. So Mario, as you look back, and obviously a huge amount has changed, the practice has become much faster, it's become more international, there's more economics, there's more uh, litigation, uh, there are thousands of people around the world now engaged in it. But looking just at the uh, the practice of European law, what do you think have been the main changes? What are the most significant decisions and judgments of the court that have really shaped the practice? Well, in a sense, uh, I can reply to this by looking back at my experience in our office and uh, with the commission, with the court. Uh, in, in light of the long period of, of practice, I really had the chance to cover the various stages of the development of EU law. There is no doubt that at the very beginning, uh, vertical restraints were at the center of the interest of the commission because of the creation of the internal market. So one of my first cases was the distiller's case. I don't know if you remember, Nick, that case. One of the very first cases in which dual pricing was uh, uh, was, uh, was uh, considered to be a violation of Article 101, and one of the very first cases in which I appeared at the Court of Justice back a long time ago. So there was this period of the vertical, vertical restraints, which was uh, very formative, and there, there were lots of debates, uh, the introduction of the basic principles of distribution law, the creation of the selective distribution system, all that was certainly a very important part of the development at the time. Then, of course, there were the big cartel cases, the, 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 um, the intervention of the commission in the chemical industry, which really was very important because uh, this gave to the court the possibility to define some of the basic principles. What is a concerted practice? Right? When do you have an agreement? No? Uh, uh, so it was a very important uh, period. Of course, at the time, there was no leniency, so a lot was uh, ex-officio investigations by the commission. And so that was certainly a very important period. And all these cases, I participated in many of the policy propylene, the BBC case, all those cases at that time. Then, of course, the other very important development was uh, the attempts by the Commission to cover the gap which was existing in the system in the major control, right? That was the other, the other extremely important development. So I still remember one of the very first cases in which a merger was opposed on the basis of the identity, the famous Irish distillers case, in which we were involved, resisting at a cover. 
Uh, of course, there was uh, the, you know, raid the Continental Camp case, and then there was the Philip Morris case on this attempt to apply Article 101, in which we were involved, of course. So those were, uh, you know, the, 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 the very first joint venture case, the Black, Car the Black Carbon case, in which, again, the Commission attempted to apply 101 to the creation of joint venture. So that was certainly all those developments preparing for then final editions of the major regulation, the other extremely important development. So in a sense, I live through all these, all these developments, including, of course, the very important uh, uh, change which took place with the, the modernization of, of the system and the decentralization of the application of EU uh, law. Basically, this is what happened you now with the creation and the strengthening of the national authorities in, in, in most, in all, and then finally all of the member states, including, of course, the developments of Article 102. Uh, all the famous cases on the refusal to deal. Uh, you remember, Nick, we were involved in some of those, the IMS case, the McGill case, all the cases which you know, established what then was at the center of the most recent developments in the digital market. So these are basically, in a summary, hired the most of the cases that I followed during all these years and which have seen the incredible development of the system of your law. It's probably like asking you uh, to choose your favorite child, but which area of practice have you found the most intellectually challenging? Well, certainly, uh, um, the, the, the interplay between a community between uh, competition law and uh, IP rights. So with the famous one or two cases that just quoted, certainly this has been always, uh, for me, a great interest. And as you know, uh, this is what I teach at the college still, you know, after all these years. Uh, of course, uh, the, the implementation of the major regulation has been a fantastic adventure. You know, the creation of the system with the very first cases was uh, certainly you know, a very important uh, development. So all those are some of the most important uh, cases uh, and uh, developments that I really enjoyed uh, living through. You touched, Mario, on uh, the modernization program in the early 2000s. I think you singled out really two or three very significant changes that change away from vertical restraints as having been a focus of uh, community activity, at least in the antitrust area, the introduction of the merger regulation. But of course, the end of the notification system and the empowerment of national competition authorities were very significant uh, changes at the beginning of the 2000s. How do you think those changes have aged and what additional changes would you now make? Uh, well, I think that the modernization system has been a success. I think there is no doubt that this has created uh, more interest, more possibility to intervene, more centrality of the competition law, not only at the EU level, but also in the systems of the various member states. There is no doubt that the modernization has created, of course, this uh, network of national authorities, has brought the competition issues at the center also the policy developments in the various member states. So I think there is no doubt that it has been a success. Uh, with it, I think that the Commission role has changed substantially. 
you will remember Nick in the old days, you know, there was a sort of relationship of collaboration with the commission. We had constant meetings with the commission. We solved most of the cases through now modifying the behavior or the agreements in which the companies were involved. Well, all this has tremendously changed. The commission has become more a sort of prosecutor. So this has been, and, and this has changed also in a sense, the relationship which law firms have with, with the commission. Um, and the commission has implemented this role fairly well, there is no doubt. For me, the only, the aspect of which I've been very much engaged in trying to uh, stimulate further development of the system is the judicial control. Of course, once the commission becomes a prosecutor, then clearly the role of the judiciary becomes extremely important. And so this notion of the limited control by, 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 the, by courts has for me always been the problematic aspect of the system. There is no doubt that the Court of Justice and the, the, the Court of Assistance have made the great improvements with their uh, case law. Uh, and there is no doubt now that uh, the cost of assistance makes a very in-depth analysis of the facts. And uh, there is still the issue of uh, the complex economic issues, and that's where some of the limitations of the jurisdiction are still uh, uh, considered and repeated by, by in, in the case law. So for me, that is the, the, the most important aspect, also because while at you level, you courts have certainly made a great progress and have certainly engaged in a very thorough analysis of the facts, not exactly the same uh, takes place at the national levels, where we have, I think, a more erratic system of judicial control. So sometimes courts are very careful and very uh, diligent, uh, review all the facts in a very, in a very detailed and meticulous way. Other times, it's a little more superficial. So uh, for me, I think the next step should be uh, uh, making sure that uh, you know, judicial control takes place at the same level of details of, uh, all over our member states. So Mario, you've been doing this for a while. You've seen cycles uh, come and go. I know you follow uh, closely um, uh, the current uh, debates going on. Seems to me we're at a fascinating time in antitrust with some of the uh, established consensus, if you like, that's built up over the last uh, 20 years um, being called into question. Um, and uh, from our perspective, it's incredibly interesting to, to see a lot of the uh, criticism of that consensus coming from the US, from academics, from uh, politicians, from agency heads, from a jurisdiction that we always look to, in a sense, has been uh, the defender of the consumer welfare standard and so forth. How do you think about the debates that are going on at the moment? What's your reaction to them? Uh, this is a very important topic, Nick, I agree fully. Well, um, so first of all, uh, I think the, 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 the real discussion is on the role of the consumer welfare standard. That for me is the key, right? And I can understand that uh, in the US uh, there are more uh, voices which are critical to the system for the way in which this concept has probably been applied in the US. I always thought that uh, in Europe, 
the concept has always been applied with more moderation and, and, and that consumer welfare standard has always been an objective which has to be reached through the maintenance of a competitive structure of the market. So those two things have been always interlinked. So I think that some of the criticism which are present in the States are probably uh, uh, correct for, uh, for what has happened in the past in the States, less so, I think, uh, for Europe. That's my first comment. But then, of course, in Europe, there is a broader debate about to what extent other policy objectives should be considered in the implementation of the competition rules. And that's where I think we have to be very careful. Because I think that the consumer welfare standard in Europe has been a very important concept to avoid the political interference in the application of the competition rules. And we know very well how easy it is for member states' authorities, for groups, to try to influence you know, the Commission in its application of the competition rules. I cite the famous Siemens Aston case as an example of, why, of how at least for some important member states, the creation of European champions was a goal which had to be achieved. And to that extent, this should have been taken into consideration in the application also of the major control rules. So uh, um, I think, and then of course, there is the bigger debate on sustainability, to what extent other no, interests and other topics have to be taken into consideration also in the application of uh, the rules of competition, in particular, you know, all the debate on the standard to be applied with respect to Article 101, Paragraph 3, no? to what extent, the, which type of consumer interest have to be taken into account in order to exempt no, agreements which have a sustainability goal, but which may raise problems from the competition standpoint. So this is, for me, a very crucial discussion. Uh, because, again, I think that we have to preserve the role of the consumer welfare as uh, protecting the integrity of the competition policy and making sure that the competition policy does not become hostage of other interests, other pressures coming from other, from, from other member states. Uh, and this is, I think, particularly important because after, of course, the modernization, as we all know, all the rules, including Article 101, have become directly applicable by judges. So if we are not clear as to what we consider the concept of consumer welfare, how a national judge is going to apply Article 101 becomes extremely difficult, no? because uh, he will have to take into account while the consumer welfare in its orthodox view is something which can be calculated, which can be measured, if we um, um, include in that balancing of interest other policy interests, I think it becomes very difficult for a national judge to uh, apply in a consistent way the competition rules. So for me, we are at a crucial point in the debate, and I hope that we found the right balance. I think that, for instance, the draft horizontal guidelines that the Commission has issued on no, the equilibrium between the application of the competition rules and pursuing uh, sustainability goals is a good compromise, is a good compromise. But I think that's the right approach, and I hope that we stay within the boundaries and we protect the traditional role of the consumer welfare.
Thank you, Maria. Look, I have several questions coming out of that, but let me start with one of them. Um, one of, I think, the unexpected, maybe unintended consequences of uh, modernization was that the Commission stopped taking decisions under 101.3. Those uh, who don't know, these are um, cases where the Commission decides there's been an infringement of 101, but the practice or the agreement can be exempted. And since then, the Commission's um, workload um, uh, has become even more stretched, um, in, in addition to state aid and cartels. And we'll talk about the cartel practice in a second. There's been merger control, and then more recently, um, uh, there's been foreign subsidies, there's digital regulation, and so forth. And the old practice that you alluded to of focusing on vertical agreements to some extent and on exemption decisions has almost gone away. The law seems to be, with the exception of the guidance, almost frozen. How do you view that? No, that's uh, absolutely. This has been a very important change, both in the system and our practice, there is no doubt. Um, on one hand, so in a sense, 101.3 is now, as I said, left to the national judges to decide. You know, in litigations, whenever somebody argues that there is a clause which is in violation of Article 101, then the judge has also to take into account, and the parties will argue that there is the possibility to apply, you know, the requirements of 101.3 in order to 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 confirm the validity of the agreement or not. So there is that aspect. We have examples of that, not many, but there is a sort of practice of 1013 in that respect. On the other hand, uh, with exactly with the sustainability discussion, the Commission has expressed its willingness to reconsider its, its approach and to advise uh, uh, companies, right, as to whether or not their sustainability agreement is in line with the virtual norm. So I see a possibility, I don't know how realistic, and uh, uh, we have some examples of cases in which the Commission has given a sort of comfort letters, right, as we know, particularly for COVID and then for the energy crisis and so forth. So there is an opening there. So there is a possibility that the system will go a little bit back to a system of uh, exemptions or at least a comfort letter no, granted by the Commission. I don't think that this will be an overwhelming change. I think that the characteristics of the modernization will remain. The role of the Commission, as I said, will remain essentially one of prosecutor with maybe some areas in which the Commission, particularly in this moment of crisis, of, of, of difficulties, the Commission may uh, go back a little bit to the, old, to the old role. Thank you, Mario. I'd like to go back to the objectives of uh, competition law. And as you alluded to, antitrust enforcement takes place in an increasingly noisy, politicized world. Some may say maybe it's been a victim of its own success. But it seems to me that uh, political pressure to use antitrust law to achieve broader policy objectives is increasing. Um, in Europe, in recent years, we've seen calls for the Commission to relax state aid rules, to intervene, to prevent non-European companies benefiting from foreign subsidies, to stand in the way of acquisitions of European companies by hostile foreign actors, uh, to flex merger rules, to allow the creation of national or European champions, to take account of employment or environmental or industrial policy considerations, 
and now to regulate the world's leading digital platforms, perhaps to assist European rivals. How do you react to all of those pressures and how well do you think the Commission is uh, doing and taking account of them while at the same time maintaining it, its institutional independence? No, that's precisely what I was alluding to. There is, of course, as you very well explained, there are all those pressure, all those uh, new instances, all those requests which are made on the Commission. I think that the Commission has tried to react, no? has tried to maintain its integrity of its role. Uh, I am a bit critical, maybe we can go into that a little later as to the, uh, uh, the DMA, but we, we can discuss that later. Uh, but I think that uh, the Commission has reacted by accepting, uh, you know, to a certain extent, uh, a more uh, regulatory approach when it considered that uh, the antitrust rules were not enough, right? So uh, uh, accepting, uh, you know, that uh, uh, the problem uh, be solved through a regulatory intervention rather by the simple application of the competition rules. It has, of course, uh, modified its approach, at least temporarily, on the state rules. It has made this very ambitious attempt to uh, extend, in a sense, uh, this unique feature of our system, which are the state rules, also to foreign investment, which is, of course, a very ambitious program, but probably very difficult to implement. So I think that the reaction has been fairly equilibrated. The Commission. The Commission has tried in a pragmatic way to solve all those problems that you mentioned, at the same time trying to maintain. Has succeeded 100%? Maybe not. Maybe because the political pressure, of course, was very strong. You know? uh, as we know, the European Parliament has taken a lot of initiatives which have, in a sense, obliged the Commission to react the way it has. Uh, I think that the, the, the the balance of all those interventions, so far at least, is still uh, equilibrated. I think it's still good. I think that the system has not been compromised. Um, the the, the, the uh, adjustments which have been made to the competition policy are mainly of the temporary nature. And uh, my hope is that the system remains as it is with those few regulatory interventions that I mentioned. So my judgment on what has happened is not negative. It's overall positive. I would have preferred that some of these regulatory solutions uh, could have been solved, I think, through uh, um, different, uh, maybe a strengthening of uh, some of the powers of the competition authorities uh, and, of course, of the commission, rather than through a regulatory intervention. But this is a topic which is uh, maybe no longer uh, at issue because the decisions have, have been made and uh, the regulatory intervention has taken place. Say a little more, Mario. I think you're implying perhaps uh, some criticism of the underlying philosophy behind the Digital Markets Act. Is that fair? Uh, yes, yeah, you have uh, caught exactly what I mean. Uh, I don't believe the, 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 what has been a lot repeated in the last time of the weakness of the competition rules. I don't believe that uh, the competition rules were not sufficient to solve some of these perceived problems in dealing with the major uh, digital platforms. In a sense, the Commission had started on the right foot by asking 
for a, a new instrument, uh, strengthening their ability you know, to apply the competition rules. And this is what Germany has done. Uh, Germany has uh, decided to strengthen you know, the powers of the Bundeskartellamt to strengthen the definition of market power in order to make it more easy for them to apply their own you know, system of uh, either measure controls or more importantly, the application of uh, uh, one or two or the German equivalent. So that is the reaction that I would have liked. Um, pres I presume that the political pressure was too strong. That's why I consider that uh, uh, while uh, the, the commissioner has had a very good first term, the second term for me has been more, uh, uh, more problematic. But again, I think that uh, this was an issue of political pressure. I would have preferred if that if DigiComp would stand you know, in the defense of what they have done. Because after all, if you, if you look at the possible, the commission has established a number of very important principles which apply to the digital platform through its case law. And the DMA is a, a synthesis of the case law based on the publication and trust rules. So I don't buy this idea that the antitrust system was not able to cope. It was able to cope. Of course, it, it requires you know, a lot of uh, enforcement uh, uh, procedures and the time, of course, I agree that the, but at least it's a dialectical progress process which allows companies to defend their point of view and the commission at the end of the day to decide as it, it, it deems appropriate. Mario, thank you for that. Let me turn to a different area of practice, uh, cartels. Um, I think simplifying considerably, um, I can think of three, um, three cycles in the cartel practice. There was the old practice, relatively few cases brought by the European Commission on the basis of evidence that it came across. Then the leniency program came into being, and I remember you as a good uh, uh, Sicilian being a little skeptical as to whether people um, would seek leniency under the whistleblower program. And then we've moved uh, quite quickly into a world of uh, follow-on damages litigation. Um, and there's obviously a trade-off to some extent we're observing, or the commissioners observed, as have others, between the leniency program and the specter of uh, follow-on damages. So what's your thought on the practice and the future in the cartel area? Absolutely. So I always think that... Uh, uh, the fight against cartels is the major job of an antitrust authority. And I am often critical of the fact that at least some of the national authorities prefer to follow new theory of arm, very sophisticated cases, you know, uh, while maybe they're less strong in the fight against cartels. So cartels clearly is the major role of any antitrust authority. And I don't think that the cartels have disappeared from the sea. I think there are still cartels uh, which uh, either at the national level or at the European level. So uh, leniency, of course, uh, is a tool which has been successful for a number of years. I understand that now, probably, you know, because of the massive uh, consequence on the base on the damage actions which follow 
of course, uh, uh, decisions by the Commission, there is a little bit uh, a lessening of frequency uh, with which companies go, go through the leniency application. So there is clearly, clearly. So uh, we may see maybe going back to uh, that period that I was uh, uh, alluding to, uh, of which the Commission was more active on the ex officio investigations. And uh, I hope that the same uh, will happen with uh, the, some of the national authorities, which should, I think, concentrate. And, and you see, I, I always thought that this leniency system, in a sense, could have had the effect of limiting the ex officio ability of the antitrust authorities you know, to uh, use investigative tools. Because, of course, it was easy. You know, they got the declaration of the leniency applicant and on that basis they built their own case so they did not need to make you know uh, much of an investigation effort uh, so i have been critical of uh, for instance also with the Italian authorities of the fact that the use of leniency and at the same time the use of commitments decisions often you know, results in uh, a lack of experience and ability in doing their own their own investigation. So I think that the solution is going to be that uh, the antitrust authorities have to enhance their ability to investigate and have to go back, which I think in part is, is happening. You know, there is, I think, an effort, uh, certainly by the commission, by some of the, member, of the uh, national authorities, to strengthen their investigative ability and to go back to some of the official procedure that we lived in the old days. So Mario, we've talked a lot about what's happened in the world of antitrust over the last few years or the last 50. Uh, I know you're always thinking though about what comes next uh, and what does come next? What are your predictions for the future? And if you were embarking on your career now, what area of practice would you specialize in? Well, there is no doubt that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the areas of uh, digital is, uh, you know, uh, extremely relevant for the coming years. So the application of the antitrust rules or the regulatory interventions in the digital area are going to be necessarily a focus in the, in the coming years, so there is no doubt. I think that... Uh, there is going to be at least certainly here in this country, but I think it will expand a development of consumer protection activity. At the moment, the Italian antitrust authority is extremely active. And with the developments at the European level, which have increased the level of fines, that area also is going to be, I think, uh, will develop also in other member states. Uh, then, of course, uh, uh, litigation, I think, will become more and more active. This is already happening. Uh, nowadays, uh, any big cases is followed by damage actions. We have seen it in some of the famous major cases at the European level, but we see it also at the national level. There is quite a lot of litigation. So those are certainly the energy is another area in which I think... Uh, you know, there's going to be a, a lot of activity also on the antitrust ground. So I think that, uh, I still think that a young person starting his career uh, will find uh, professional satisfaction in developing an antitrust expertise. I always consider that it's very important also in parallel to develop 
also some expertise on the regulatory side of some of those important markets because I think the clients uh, appreciate the ability of a lawyer to be uh, capable of assessing, uh, uh, you know, a, a proposed behavior by company, both with uh, the effects that may have on the antitrust and the, and the regulatory side, uh, um, and of course uh, litigation. So th for me, those are the areas. Uh, so I think that uh, for a young person, concentrating on the antitrust practice is still uh, a valuable and important uh, choice. So Mario, you've built a practice in Rome to complement your Brussels practice. For those uh, listeners who don't know much about the enforcement environment in Italy today, if there were a spectrum with, let's say, the FTC and the CMA at one end, the European Commission in the middle, and say the Japanese Antitrust Authority at the other end, where would you place the Italian authority? And I say that thinking back maybe to, I don't know, 20 years ago when the authority was viewed as being a pretty activist agency. No, you're right. Certainly the, the Italian authority has uh, gained a good reputation internationally, also because, as you know, it has had also uh, president of great prestige, uh, Giuliano Amato, Tesauro. So there, there is no doubt that there has been... Uh, development maybe more than expected in the sense that for a country which did not add a tradition of competition law, there is no doubt that the Italian authority has been a success and it has and it plays an important role today, there is no doubt. Um, I think probably one of the problems is that so many tasks have been given to the Italian authority that of course, with always the same problem with limited resources, you have to decide you know, what to do, right? The Italian authority has a lot of uh, other functions which have been granted to, her, to, to the authority by the Italian government. Uh, today, the two major activities are antitrust and consumer protection. There is a lot of activity more on consumer protection rather than antitrust, also because the Italian authority has found that it is possible to use the consumer protection legislation to achieve exactly the same goal that you can sometimes achieve through antitrust. And of course, since the procedure in the consumer protection is much simpler, right, and less demanding for the authority, they use that route. The famous example is the Facebook case. As you know, the Italian authorities has intervened on the same issues which were at the center of the German Facebook case. The difference is that the German case was brought under antitrust rules. The Italian case was brought under consumer protection. And the Italian case was very quick, very easy, and very successful for the authority. While, of course, the German case has been embroiled in a litigation, which is still, still pending. Um, so that's basically the scene. Um, I, my, I think, as I said that, uh, but I don't think it's the only authority, they have a tendency of uh, pursuing novel uh, theories of harm, uh, you know, to want to be at the avant-garde of uh, the enforcement of competition rules. And sometimes I think they should go back to cartel enforcement. Uh, so that is my major criticism. So but overall, I think it's one of the authority which I would place in the middle of the range. Uh, certainly, it's doing a, you know a, a good job, and it has a good reputation. 
and um, it, the procedures are very, very sophisticated. So there is, in a sense, there is a, a parallel um, uh, importance of the right of defense and uh, the right to be heard and so forth, which is more or less in line with the commission standards. So Mario, we've talked about the law. I'd like to ask you a few questions about uh, legal practice and your own career. As you look back, what do you see as the main changes in legal practice? Well, uh, what has happened in legal practice in Europe uh, in the last few years? Well, certainly, uh, as we said, uh, there has been this uh, talking about our field, of course, there has been this tremendous expansion of uh, new law, uh, both uh, centrally and at the national level. Uh, the huge growth of the Brussels practice, which we have all witnessed, and, uh, of course, the, the, the creation of important national practices, and, uh, and these has, of course, also prompted the uh, development of large national firms. So you have a lot of, and this has clearly, clearly been an important development. All these has made, of course, the market a more competitive market, more focused on legal uh, costs, of course, much more than in the past. And of course, with the added element of the increase in economic analysis, which is needed in most of our cases, which involves also the involvement of economists. Plus, as I said, the growth of litigation. For me, those are the major developments which have taken place in our, in our professional career. 20 years ago, Mario, you took a decision that surprised many at the time. Um, you left Brussels when you were at the top of your game to build an antitrust practice in Rome. Initially, I remember working in rented space at the top of an old building in the center of town. What led you to take that decision? And do you regret it in any way? No, I don't regret it at all. First of all, let me tell you, Nick, I'm still feel, I feel myself to be at the top of my game. I'm not giving it that up. I consider to continue what I was doing in a different environment. Why did I make that decision? You know, first of all, we had been in, in Belgium and Brussels for a long time, and my wife wanted to come back to Brussels, to Rome, so that was an important element. But the second and very important reason of my decision was the following. I had the good fortune of being in a wonderful firm, being surrounded by great partners, outstanding professionals, and we all together had, in all those years I was in Brussels, we all together built a fantastic machine. The Brussels office is a fantastic office, which is really at the top of uh, what we do in general in Europe, and it is a very well-oiled machine which works extremely well. So my prospect was to be, you know, the senior partner of this wonderful office for the next uh, maybe 20 years. And I thought that I wanted to do something new. Huh? That was basically the real reason. So, of course, by maintaining a strong link with Brussels, because as you know, I'm very often in Brussels. I continue, you know, my uh, work with my uh, fantastic partners in Brussels. I go very often to the Court of Justice. So I continue my activity also at the European level, but also I have developed these, 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 these fantastic activity here in Italy. Also because, of course, this choice coincided with the uh, um, 
the, the enactment of the Italian antitrust law, the creation of the Italian authority. And of course, I envisaged that the system would change with the modernization and there will be this development of practices at the national, at the national level. So those are the reasons, basically, uh, of my choice. You've spoken a couple of times, Mario, about pleading before the community courts, and you do a lot of pleading as well before the Italian courts. Um, you're one of the most distinguished advocates of your uh, generation, a true uh, force of nature uh, before any court or tribunal. Can you share with us the process you go through in preparing to plead, and what advice would you give to a young advocate? But in a sense, Nick, is very simple. I, I do two things. I read all the file in preparation for an hearing. I read all the file because I think an advocate has to be prepared and ready to you know, cope with any issue which may come at the hearing and reply to any question. So you read the entire file and then I prepare, I write by hand my own pleadings by hand not necessarily to use them at the hearing, but the process of writing your own uh, pleadings makes clear, first of all, what you want to say, obliges you to be very, very well structured, and, at the, and the, the fact of writing it down impresses it in your mind, so that then you feel very at ease in the courtroom. And again, you don't, I, I never read the, the notes, I don't even often look at them, but they remain engraved in, in my mind, and this helps me tremendously. So those are very simple techniques that any good young lawyer can use. I've known you, Mario, uh, for over 30 years, and I remember well my excitement in being assigned what I thought was uh, prime real estate in our Brussels office, uh, the room next to yours. What advice would you give the young Mario, or perhaps uh, the still young Nick? Well, I think the most important thing is to keep interest and enthusiasm in what one does. For me, this is very simple and very true. If you do things with passion, with interest, with uh, uh, you know, curiosity, intellectual curiosity, I think, this is the best ticket for a good professional life and a good results, of course, which can not be always you know, positive, but at least because it's very important to have the impression that you have done the best that you could with the passion and with interest and with the discipline. And then, you know, in a sense, once you do that, you are internally satisfied of what you have done. And I think the client is equally, you know, because he, show, he sees that what you are doing. And uh, so that's, that's my, my, if you want advice, but it's uh, very simple. And I think also that in the professional life, it's very important also to participate in the debate, you know, to be uh, you know, willing to spend also some time and efforts in... Uh, uh, public speaking, uh, in uh, uh, talking to young people, in uh, um, disseminating uh, you know, the knowledge of, uh, of the law. I think uh, this is uh, a taking position on 
procedures on, 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 on legal issues. I think this is an important part of, uh, of a good uh, professional life. Thank you, Mario. And to end, as is traditional, some quick fire questions. If you could change one thing about European antitrust enforcement, what would it be? To complete the evolution of uh, the judicial control. For me, that is uh, probably the most important issue. Second question on Brexit, Mario. What's your reaction to it in a few words? Has it strengthened or weakened European antitrust enforcement? It's maybe too early to say. Uh, I think that UK contribution has been always very important for the strengthening of the antitrust enforcement. I think the role of UK could be very important, particularly in light of the debate that we discussed earlier on the consumer welfare. So I hope it doesn't happen, but I see that it is a loss, the fact that UK is no longer part of it. Because of this importance of debate in which I think UK could have contributed in a very, in a very positive way. But my hope is that even not being a member, uh, it, uh, we'll be able to continue the dialogue and to influence also what's uh, happening in Brussels. And before my last question, Mario, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? Uh, the proudest achievement is probably the creation of uh, a group of fantastic professionals, uh, both in Brussels and in Italy. That is my greatest achievement. Uh, which is not only mine, of course, which is a collective achievement, but for me, this has been the greatest thing which uh, makes it you know, really worthwhile one, uh, what one does and uh, what has always kept me within this firm, the fact of uh, having colleagues uh, which are uh, extremely uh, excellent in what they do and uh, friends for which it's a pleasure to work with. So this is my 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 better. My regret, uh, I don't I don't know exactly because uh, sometimes uh, you know uh, I feel uh, that uh, uh, we are not been able or I have not been able to uh, give uh, to all the young people, wonderful young people, to come to work. To my uh, I try always to create uh, you know opportunities. And sometimes you don't succeed, of course. Uh, that may be my regret. And finally, Mario, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known? Well, maybe the most important thing recently is that the fact that I have five granddaughters, uh, all girls, and the oldest is four years old, and the youngest is just born a few weeks ago. Mario, congratulations. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to work alongside you for, uh, for 30 years, and I look forward very much to the next 30. Thank you for joining us today. It was a wonderful podcast. I really enjoyed myself, um, and thank you for all the time you put in uh, to thinking about today's topics. Thank you, listeners, for joining today. I look forward to welcoming you to the next edition of Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review. Bye.